Out the Oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are continuing our miniseries, Denny for Two, covering every film directed by Denny Villeneuve leading up to Dune. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett's. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Wade, how are you? I'm doing really good. I think we can officially say on the podcast, Emmett, our personal life developments. Oh, can we? Yeah, it's out in the open now, so we can both talk about it. Okay, well, we can just say that we are going cinema toast, coast to coast, baby. (laughs) I'm headed to uh, Northern California to go to clown school. That's right. If you thought he wasn't already an expert in clown, well, here's some more. And uh, Wade, what are you doing? I'm moving to the Big Apple, baby. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a real New Yorker. And that's a few episodes away now, but that's um, that's what we're in the process of doing. Hell yes. I don't. It shouldn't affect you know the listeners' experience of the podcast, other than that our accents will be completely different in about a month. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, if you want to wish us good luck on that crazy journey, please do. Also, like if anybody wants to like help me out with gas money, uh, you know, California's a long way away. <laughs> So, you know, wouldn't be offended. Go open up your text messages and type in cinema bums and then and then say pay one hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, the cinema bums have a Venmo. Um uh-huh. we will. <laughs> open we will. up your phone. We do now. We do now. By the by the time this episode drops, we in fact do. Well listen, we have a huge episode. We truly we have an absolute unit of an episode. We're talking about a legacy sequel to a film from the 80s based on a book from the 60s. Imagine the context. Imagine the stats. We've got behind the scenes drama. We've got a quiz. We've got hot takes. And at the end of all of this, we're going to announce a new series. So we are truly packed to the gills today. And we're very excited because here to help us along the way is a very special guest. We've wanted to have him for so long. He's a writer, producer, Jurassic Park Jeep owner, and co-host of the excellent podcast, Illiterate. Perhaps best known to our audience for writing, directing, and starring in Nuclear Fallout Boy. Oh, God. Pete Wentz superhero biopic. Please welcome Evan Scott Russell. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys make me feel so welcome. It's like being welcomed home. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You are home. And I couldn't be more happy to be here talking about this. Oh my God, this is going to be great. I'm so excited. <laughs> Wait, before we before we kick this off, I just have one question for you. Is this the longest movie we have ever covered? It must be, right? <laughs> it's got to be. Are there any movies longer than this one? I was going through it today and I was like, right. And so there's like 15 minutes left and I like started to like thumb through it and there's a full hour left. (laughs) (laughs) It's but that being said, it's like not that it's it's two hours and 43 minutes. I'm pretty sure that like some of the Avengers movies are right there at the same thing. So I don't really have no stomach for that. Yeah, I was I was doing a little research today because I thought I had a hot take about blockbusters being longer in the last five years. Mm. 
And I found out that it, that's just not true. There have always been really long movies. I think they want you to think that. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. I was like, I was like, oh, this is good. And then they were like, Lawrence of Arabia, three and a half hours. <laughs> Titanic, three hours. No, they're still minutes. whittling. They're, no, they're still getting there. That's what I mean. The perception that this is like overwhelming is a bit is like really overblown. Yeah. When we were watching, I felt like the pacing was pretty tight. Yeah, yeah, I watch it and I'm just like, well, I mean, you could cut some, maybe some air out of it, but it's all due to tension. It's all due, yeah. it's all working in a direction. So I'm just like, what do you, what do you cut that's not operating? I, I, I every time I watch it, because this is such a, um, this is, again, it's the first thing we're talking about. It is everybody's, people haven't seen it. Well, it's long, isn't it? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. If you're clued in and you're really there with the storytelling, I don't think so. I really don't. Mm. I mean, if you're going to see Endgame or Infinity War, these things, they're right there. They're right there. We're talking within 15 minutes of the same runtime. I read that the first cut Denny delivered was four hours and that the studio (laughs) was considering breaking it into two two hour movies and releasing them like a year apart. I think that's really overblown as well. I think that's like people trying to write headlines and stuff. When you're doing something like this, these things just end up in the timeline. They can be... They're going to be monsters. And so I think when they finally get everything, the kitchen sink in in the timeline laid out without really, you know, you, you don't want to sit down and watch this cut. And that's what he'll say if you ask him yeah. about this. It's like, it's not a cut you can watch. It's a cut that's just there. Uh, it's like a starting point. So, no, I, I don't think the talks to actually break it into two were actually were like all that serious because they didn't even get started on it when that was the form of it. Yeah. Today we're talking about Blade Runner 2049. The sequel to the 1982 movie Blade Runner and and based on the novel Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. We'll get into the stats in a minute, but I want to ask all of us about our history uh, with this movie and the original movie. And I'll start with you, Evan. When I went to log this film on Letterboxd, I saw that you watched Blade Runner 2049 seven times. I did. In theaters. Is that correct? It's correct. That is correct. It is correct. I had very little contact with the original film. I think I saw it for the first time at a screening here in Los Angeles at maybe the Vista Theater on film. And I think it was even the bad cut with the voiceover. So it wasn't mm. even, you know, in its in it wasn't the final cut, which I think most people will, will you know, whittle down to and decide to watch that version. So no, I, I really had very little contact with the original. And then when the sequel was announced i went uh typical they would you know and really gave it no (laughs) gave it no credibility from the gate at all it took it took a couple it it took until the first full trailer and they were teasing it before that even at the oscars and stuff when that was the year la la land won but uh it took Mm -hmm. a lot of convincing for me but when the when the trailer finally was released i i turned pretty quickly and said Watching the trailer, I started to get my friends excited watching that. I was like, there's something here. This might be a really, really interesting story. Um, so it spurred me to actually go restudy the original. I, I uh, got some friends together and watched that. We finally watched the uh, the final cut and all of that and, you know, waited. This was in the, you know, maybe a month before uh, 2049 is released. So getting getting hyped mm-hmm. for it. Uh, and at the same time, I am working on the effects team for Altered Carbon season one. So if you know anything about that, you can guess that my whole team was looking at this project 
very intently. We were wanting to see mm. what 2049 was going to unfold. Uh, Altered Carbon has a, a ton of a very obvious, if you go look at it, it has a, a lot of visual callbacks to Blade Runner, hugely inspired by that. So my whole office was was excited, nervous. Uh, they knew this was on the horizon and they were working in a very like you know, parallel form with it. So uh, it, it certainly had some precedent just going in my normal everyday life. And then I turned into a little bit of a, you know, study session for me. So, yeah. And then seeing the film, I, I was really blown away I, on the offset. I just don't feel like that there had been a film this well designed and configured in nearly two decades. Wow. Damn, that's awesome. And so you loved it in theaters. Did, have you revisited it? continually since it came out or I was so focused on it. I mean, I, cause I, you know, coming out of film school I and mean, you know, you get disillusioned with things and jaded and all sorts of ways. And uh, this was a breath of fresh air for me. This was saying, Oh, mm. this is, this is filmmaking how you love it. This is filmmaking in, in a lot of old ways brought to the modern form using the best techniques, whether that be down to miniatures or we're using the full fledged effects, you know, of, of DNEG, a company that I was working with at the very same time mm. doing the effects of this, doing the visual, the 3D effects. Uh, this was just filmmakers, the right people in the right places going about the right story in the right way. And that just so is rarely the case that you have the right mm. people in the right places from top to bottom. And, and and I still, there are things that we could talk about where I still don't think this film was unscathed in that way. Just before we are getting on, I was looking into the score. I think there's a lot of contention about the score. Yeah, I, I, I go on, I might digress to say it ruined uh, Johan Johansson's life. So I, you know, this, this movie is not completely unscathed, like pony that just escaped the studio process. Um, mm. But it is the closest thing I can point to since probably the matrix. Wow. Uh, Emmett, what's your history of Blade Running? I read the PKD book first before ever having watched Blade Runner and fell in love with that book and had read that a couple of times. And then I think I saw this first before watching the original mm, and cool. then have since gone back and watched the original. Let me just say that neither of these movies has much of anything to do <laughs> with the book by Philip K. Dick. And mm. that is like a pattern with most adaptations of his work are like cool idea and <laughs> yeah. that's it. And like we'll take <laughs> the idea and maybe a couple character names and we'll run with that and like plot and like whatever he was saying will just like leave it alone because it's too weird <laughs> if you want like any example of like how crazy it is to try to go out and shoot that is this like that movie almost ruined those filmmakers life that's why there's like six cuts of this thing it's when people right. say yeah. it's a masterpiece so it's like there's no content there's no agreement as to what version it is what are you talking yeah. about uh, yeah. it, it is the it is one of the most uh, hotly debated comprised uh, tone poems of a film that I can. Yeah. Point. I mean, everybody mm. points to this thing as as like it is their favorite. And when you talk to industry people that are in effects uh, in sci fi and genre, Blade Runner is always, I mean, if not their favorite movie, it's in the top five, the top three. But people like want to give it this like it's perfect. And I'm like, well, the people who made it don't agree on which version is the thing. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. let me tell you that the, go study the production. It's one of the most crazy stories of a production I've ever heard. The amount of rewrites. I mean, they have no, I mean, they're really, and what you can say for it is it's an amazing expression of just 
art. I mean, they're really just like moving on on intent and passion and and what's compelling and what's visually stunning. Uh, it, so yeah. there's tons of it. There, that's where it leads, and because that is the lead of that film, that's why I think it is viewed as a success. Because through all of those things, through all of the themes, it really does emerge as something that at least if you're not, if you don't agree on what it is, there's something for you in it for you to go. That's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. I, so it, that's how crazy it is to take on one of these things is that those those filmmakers were on a suicide journey to adapt this thing. So that, that speaks yeah. to everything you're saying about just like you can't adapt what he was doing in the book. And so this is like just a bare bones attempt and then it's a it's amazing at all that it that it got the right hands on it and it turned into this really like dream artful experiment i I feel like something that's really interesting about the original too is that if you're watching that's what 82 if you watch like sci-fi movies of the late 80s and early 90s they're grungier they're dirtier they're a little bit more like moody and apocalyptic and it feel like they owe a lot visually to this movie all the way up to like the prequel star Wars trilogy on like all the stuff in Coruscant looks just like mm -hmm. the city and the original Blade Runner. You can't debate it. It's yeah, Yeah. it's undeniable. I mean, that's that's, the beauty of it. It was such just an experiment. And I think people Mm -hmm. were really inspired by that. So I'd only seen this one, 2049. The one time I saw it in theaters, and then this time that we watched it just a couple of days ago, mm. when I saw it in theaters, I liked it, but was just kind of like depressed by it. I was like impressed, but also depressed by it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was just like, this is bleak. And I only had the reference of the book to go off of, mm-hmm. of this being like a sequel to something that was based on this book. Right, so like, right. I was like, I don't really get how it uh, yeah. ties in. I don't know how oh, this could be a sequel to that book. So like, I was like, what's up with that? And I was just kind of like nonplussed by it at the time. Yeah. Now going back and watching it again, especially after watching all of Denny's movies and like with an eye to the way mm. that he makes things and like what he's really focused on, watched it again this time and absolutely loved it. it was completely blown away. Hey, it might even just play better at home, to be honest. It's such it an intent movie. Uh, if you break away your focus from it, you will lose. You'll lose. It. This is a visual film. There, There's nonverbals littered throughout every scene. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're not giving it that uh, that attention, then it can can lose itself. I think there's a lot to be said for why it might work and in a home theater setting. The only thing I would say that doesn't work better at home is those tiny, tiny fonts at the beginning. Yeah. Could not believe how small the fonts were in this movie. <laughs> it's a font for ants. Uh, Wade, what was your experience? I've never read the book. I had always heard of Blade Runner, but it was really a blind spot for me as a kid. Yeah, same. Specifically because there were all the versions of it. Uh, this was also like before 2007 when the final cut came out. Like as a kid, I'd always heard like Harrison Ford did this other sci-fi thing the same time as Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And it's cool, but there are like a thousand versions and everyone debates which one you should watch. <laughs> so I was just like, I won't watch any of it. It becomes that. this like, you know, uh, cult following kind of thing of like everybody debating on which version they like or what 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 is closer to what ideal of the story (laughs) there are like different things happening in the movie depending on which cut of that original movie wildly (laughs) yeah that's what i mean it's like such an experiment uh Uh and i thought i don't think people give it the the that credit for being like well it was they were trying a lot of different things there was no consensus i mean they still don't know i guess maybe they made up but they they didn't they didn't know what who deckard was 
you know, and that was yeah. that ended up being kind of the MacGuffin of it. It's like, well, well what is he? And it's such a, a, a smart thing to put at the center of this film. I was really excited for this movie when the first trailer for it came out. Yeah. The like logo tease reveal. And again, this is never seeing any of the original Blade Runner. So I saw like the visuals in that trailer and I was like, this is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. I can't believe it. So in preparation for this, I watched the original movie a couple nights before. I watched all of the prequel shorts Mm -hmm. uh, and I went and saw this in IMAX opening weekend with my family. And I remember very distinctly that we were like the only people in the theater. Oh, God. Heartbreaking. Do we want to talk about that controversy? Yeah, we'll talk about because not many people saw this, uh, at least in the Well, and again, they did at home. That's where their numbers are. That's what's interesting about it is they did at home. It's just, oh, my God. I, but, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all that's the same thing as the first movie. Like, nobody yeah. really saw the first yeah. movie when it came out. And now it's a classic. But a studio was also being like, let's give a gigantic budget to a sequel 30 years later of a movie that made no money. And this will be a big hit. <laughs> Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. This movie mm. should have never opened in the fall. It, it, they wanted they wanted to open it in the summer. They marketed this like a Marvel film. Huge yeah. mistake. This needed to come out late November, December. This needed to go for an Oscar run and you treat it as such. If, if you came to it with the gravitas of like, you need to catch up which is definitely what the film demands in a certain way, mm -hmm. I think that there would have been a bit of a different response in the, the public eye. Also, there was no attempt to make the original more readily available. And I remember like the people talking about that at the time. They couldn't find Blade Runner you know, at the store or something. And again, this is like 2017. But mm -hmm. I, at the time, I was like, that's a lame excuse. But then uh, uh, when I think about it now, I'm like, well, that's just general. They're just not supporting this film in the way that... They're, it's as if they have not seen the film. Uh, they're, yeah. they're looking at it's a it's a sequel. Harrison Ford generate okay big franchise, which it's not. Which I don't know why it even has that idea like attributed yeah. to it. Why it's was not. it marketed exactly. as like pure nostalgia right. for the original right. film? Because not many people have seen that thing. Right. It's actually probably better for you to come in totally blind for this movie and then be taken with it, and mm. and then you go back and watch the original. It's probably a better way to experience it when you know, when you think about how this movie is laid out. I, I just think that they marketed it like a Marvel film and it fell flat on its face because of it. And you watched the industry convalesce around Dinny. And that is why Dune is upon us now. That's why. Mm -hmm. Because this film, it's inexcusable that it didn't go for a major Oscars run. That's what yeah. everyone was saying. Everybody's managers, all the talent involved. This was a disaster. Well, to that point of it being better on its own, when I saw it the first time, I felt like my takeaway, I liked it a lot, but I felt like I liked the first one better. Mm -hmm. Having just seen that, I felt like I was a little more like blown away by the first mm. one. And I've got to say that that was also my reaction. I did the exact same thing with the Halloween reboot, which I remember talking to you about, mm, Evan, right. where I watched the first one like the night before for the first <laughs> right. time and then watched the new one. And I did the exact same thing with Candyman. And in yeah, all of them, yeah. I was like, I like the new one, but I really like the old one. And I've got to say that I'm a little worried that this is going to happen to me with Dune. Right. Don't worry about that. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I would say that's probably not going to be a problem <laughs> with, with the David Lynch Dune versus the Dune. I know Dune. everyone says that, but it's David Lynch. It's got oh my God, in dude, it. He wouldn't even, he would say, don't watch it. <laughs> 
God, God no. Go see the new one. That's why they made it. <laughs> so anyway, that was what I thought at the time. And then again with Em and I rewatched it this time. Purposefully didn't rewatch the first one. Didn't watch the shorts. Just like checked back in on this and was really blown away by it. From the page, I mean, it's it's expertly told. You guys should look at the screenplay. I urge you to go look at the screenplay because mm. it, it's beautiful, dude. How, how long is it? Forty pages? No, <laughs> God, I don't have it. It's, it's actually not all that all that crazy, but the detail in it—it's almost as good as, as as watching the movie in ways. One of the most beautiful scripts I've ever read on the page. Let's dive into it here. The stats. Uh, this is the ninth film directed by Denny Villeneuve. It was written, credited to Hampton Fancher, who Evan. Oh yeah, created, who- you guys. Yeah, I got. It. So Hampton Fancher is actually he. You notice in the credits for 2049, he gets credited with story by alone. This is attributed to a bit of an adaptation in this film. Hampton Fancher is one of the original screenwriters for Blade Runner, the original film. Uh, There were a lot of screenwriters, but he's often regarded as one of the central figures in that. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to attend a screening of the final cut Blade Runner the week before 2049 uh, came out with Hampton Fancher in attendance for the Q&A. So that was an incredible insight. Um, But to learn about the inception for this sequel is that while they were making Blade Runner, they had they went through all sorts of ideas, all sorts of, you know, different scenes and pieces and puzzles of this. And there were a couple that emerged as like, ooh, I'll put that in the drawer for later. And one scene that always stayed with him came about when he was putting together a short story collection around 2013, maybe 2012. And he was talking to the publisher and they were saying, you know, last call, anything else you want to put in this? What, you know, is there anything else we could do with this? And Hampton says, well, I've got this leftover scene from Blade Runner that I've been kicking around in my head for a long time. Are you interested in that? And so they were like, of course, we're interested in that. Uh, So he went back to the drawing board, wrote the story. Sends it back to the publisher. Okay, here we go. And it's going to cap off the book. We might even pull the title from the story. Wow, this actually gives it. Oh, now we can say from the screenwriter of Blade Runner. You know, and then people who are following that will find out about it. But it's something else to position it, the, the book with. So he's sending the story to the publisher. Same day. I mean, and, uh, it's amazing to hear him describe it. But same day, he's sending the story. Done. I'm done with that. That was nice to get that out. Phone rings. Ridley Scott. We're thinking about doing a Blade Runner sequel. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> He's uh, seriously the same day. Absolutely wild. So he flies out immediately. Of course. Yes. <laughs> you know. The, mm-hmm. uh, so he, he flies out to meet Ridley. And on the way there, he's realizing, I really just have like this kind of piece of just, uh, just did this little story. But what could that be? But then it all whittled down to the idea of what the main character would be. The metaphor of this character turning a, uh, a manual into a poem. How this, the journey of K uh, would be the journey of this film. And, and so that was really the, the inspiration for it. So he meets with Ridley. He, he does a draft of the script and then it goes through Michael Green's hands, who really puts the, the cap on it. One of the bigger distinctions between the two versions is in Hampton, Hampton's version, Deckard dies. Uh, the Michael Green version, they, they mm. redirect into a, the, the union 
uh, instead, you know, Kay making the decision to not do what the uh, the Underground Society of Replicants is telling you, know, kill Deckard. He says, well, no, there's another option here that nobody's talking about. I can reunite the child and father. That comes out mm-hmm. of the Hampton Fancher draft. So, oh. uh, you know, that that's good ideas working in good directions. So you can, uh, if you go back and read that story, there's a lot meditative for the character of Kay in the book, Shape of the Final Dog. Uh, his name is Card, which is a shortening of Deckard. So this is all kind of pointing to the question, the big question, if anything, Blade Runner stayed alive because of the question of is Deckard a replicant or is he not a replicant, which they don't want to answer because then the sh- you wouldn't, it wouldn't be relevant. We wouldn't be making a sequel and an anime show and all that kind of stuff. Ending of Shape of the Final Dog is the first scene of 2049 when you meet uh, Sapper Morton. Uh, that, that whole first altercation is how the Shape of the Final Dog resolves. One fun thing that was also lifted from that is titular, the Shape of the Final Dog, Sapper in this has a dog while this altercation uh... is taking place. And so after uh, the serial number is retrieved, from Sapper, uh, the dog is there and he doesn't know whether what to do with the dog. Do I take the dog? Do I not take the dog? The dog is afraid and he decides he's going to take the dog. And as soon as he does, the dog like keels over, starts glitching, starts barking, but it's dead. So it's not real. <laughs> you know, uh... The idea of this dog was taken and then attributed in 2049 to Deckard. That's why he has a dog in Vegas. Yeah, I read that there's a whole fan debate about whether or not the dog is a replicant. Read the book. A la Deckard in the first one. (laughs) That's not to diminish what Michael Green brings to it, as I said. And Green, we've talked about on this podcast before, Emmett, because this same year he wrote Logan. He's all over the place, dude. I mean, you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. So he'd done those and then he did the two Perot movies. He did Murder on the Orient Express mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Death of the Nile. And he's also I mean, done these Disney movies like Jungle Cruise and Call of the Wild. He's the showrunner of that show, American Gods, which I, I've always kind of oh, meant to check yeah. out, but I've never... He's uh, He is overseeing the Blade Runner comic book and anime series that's going on now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much he's actually writing on it, but I think he's over, in terms of like Hampton Panther is not interested in like helping story development stuff for mm-hmm. France. So mm-hmm. it's like this is where Michael Green comes and is like, well, I am the other expert in this field and, and much more so. I mean, he is the working professional, obviously, as we're talking about. That. This is, as we mentioned, a sequel to the 1982 film Blade Runner, which was directed by Ridley Scott of Gladiator, Alien, The Martian, 70 other films, fame, based on the 1968 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. The cinematography in this movie, Blade Runner 2049, is by Roger Deakins, the third time he's worked with Denny after Prisoners and Sicario. Finally got him that Oscar. This was nominated for five Academy Awards, the Oscars. The two it won were Best Visual Effects and Best Cinematography, which was Roger Deakins' first win. That's how much of a like a struggle it was to even like it got through on the technical categories. But as we're going through it, it's yeah. like it's so much more than that. Oh my god! And look what happened to Denny again. Look, okay, the whole industry comes around. We won't let you fail. <laughs> the pandemic hits straight to streaming. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> <I> man. <know. laughs> it's just you can't you can't write it, man. It's uh, it's wild. The score for this movie, the the version that is released, is by Hans Zimmer who remember from all our Lion King episodes and Benjamin Walfish, who did it Shazam hidden figures. I think he's a frequent collaborator with Zimmer. 
But as Evan was alluding to earlier... Johan Johansson, I think, but I'm no expert on that. (laughs) I certainly am not either, as any listener to the podcast will know. Denny's composer was originally hired to do the score and then replaced in favor of something closer to the original original score. I think that is absolute... I'll say this so people stop talking about it because I Mm. don't believe it for a second. Go back and watch the announcement trailer. What you're hearing in the announcement trailer is Johan Johansson's work. And they're setting up the thematics of what they're trying to do with that film very early. Mm. Go listen to it because it's aggressive, but it's also a bit recognizable. And I think it's a pretty obvious leap from Vangelis to this. I'll say it right out. I think that they scrapped the Johansson score because they wanted the Hans Zimmer name on it. Mm. It's no secret that Hans Zimmer is much more of a name label than he is actually a person sitting down playing the music to the screen. Yeah. That's what I mean is by this didn't get out totally unscathed through the studio system. This is where it really hit the wall. I think this movie ruined Johan Johansson's life, probably. Yeah, it is just after this that he passes away. He, yeah, I think it's February 2018. He passes mm-hmm. away wildly unexpectedly, drug overdose. Uh, just uh, yeah. It seems like the the weight of the industry and the pressures absolutely co- you know, made this guy collapse. I mean, this is an artist of the utmost caliber in... Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's this is this is something I don't think people talk about at all, because when I read again, I was refreshing for this today and I was reading that back over what Denny was saying. And I'm when I look at it, it sounds like I'll say Vangelis. So people go stop asking if I just say Vangelis, people. Will right, stop asking. right. Yeah, uh, I think it was a huge, huge point of contention behind the scenes. There was actually uh, rumored to be a track or two released of Johan Johansson's score, very newly released. He has out a mm. EP on Spotify called Gold Dust. It was just released this August, but they say that the lead track from that head full of mush is straight out of his uh, rejected Blade Runner 2049 score. So go listen uh, to that yeah. and and you tell me between the two if one is closer to Vangelis or not. And I, I just think <laughs> I, I read that statement and I went, oh, no, Denny. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time I've ever thought about Denny in a negative light. Mm. I don't think it's I don't think it's a coincidence that this pretty stable, dependable artist suddenly doesn't deliver and then suddenly isn't in existence anymore. Yeah, that's so sad. One doesn't precede the other. Yeah. There's, a, there's a way that that transpires. So he was contractually bound from speaking about it. So mm-hmm. who's going to tell that? Who, who, who is ever going to tell that? I don't know. I don't buy, I, I want to hear more from Denny about that specifically, to be quite honest. Um, more than yeah. just like, well, I wanted something more like Vangelis. There, there are some snippets of what was being worked on out there, and I just don't buy the argument at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and go look. If you look into this, I mean, trying to find snippets of this score release, there were some, and they are systematically taken down. It's very hard to find right now. Uh, I think the mm. studio's involvement is pretty obvious. Yeah, that's brutal. And they were really partners, I mean, up until this point. Yeah, you think that that just like, you think Denny is just like, doesn't know who he had, you know, that kind of collaborator that it's like, you think he's going to bring that guy onto the most important project of any of anybody who's working on this career. Mm -hmm. So he's going to bring in your if you want, do you want to say that that Johan was unstable (laughs) coming into the production and that he just, you know, 
that's the road he was on and that's how it ended up. And, the, you know, the evidence, uh, no, I don't buy it for a second. Every, there's nothing wrong with this guy until it gets yeah, rejected. For real. Yeah. You've got your partner and you're like, no, actually I'd like Benjamin Wallfish. That's who I would like to see. Uh, yeah, it's it, so. I think that this is the dirtiest part of this whole thing, and it's a real shame. Uh, I'm I, I I say if the original cut would were to be, I don't care about a four. I wish people would shut up about the four hour cut. I want to hear the Johansson score. Me too. They would rather you talk about the four hour cut. No, that's 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 the scathing criticism I'll give on something that I absolutely love dearly. I'm rewatching it today before we we uh, come together, and I'm just like I can't watch some of these scenes anymore because I've I've poured over it so intrinsically. The script, the the book, um, I have the mm-hmm. art book here with me. It's just one of my favorite things. Uh, it's hard to watch some of these scenes to feel like that we just don't make movies like this anymore. That's how I really yeah. feel about it. At the heart of this, something so important as the score, I'm not going to shy away for, you know, sorry to be a bummer, guys. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. There's hardly any conversation about this. And it's really sad. And the more I looked into it and the more I were trying to pull on threads and hear more of that original score, the more Denny's statements made no sense. Yeah, I definitely felt that too in my research. Very out of character. Yeah, it's dirty. So I'm like, I hope maybe in like 10 years, he's just going to be like, well, this is what was happening. This is the studio. You know, when he is done making, you know, I don't know. He might be done making movies with uh, with Warner Brothers uh, or Legendary after Dune and that kind of thing. But uh, when he is free of all of those things, maybe he'll talk about it. And that'll really put my worry at ease. But just to say, I'd never, I, Denny is one of, and still is probably one of the most like solid guys in the business. Everybody who comes into contact with him uh, seems that he's incredible and I mean, when you look at the films, he's incredible. I haven't seen all his movies, so mm-hmm. it's you guys tell me, but I've seen enough to know that the guy just is so intuitive, so compassionate. For him to be caught up in something like this and to find a collaborator, you know, just is not with us anymore. It's just bizarre um, to not be talking about it. It's bizarre. I hope that when he's free yeah. of those obligations and those restraints that he's able to shed some light because I think there's a lot to be told. Yeah, and I hope we get to hear it one day. Uh, okay, wrapping up the stats here. Runs two hours and 43 minutes. Released October 6th, 2017, almost exactly four years ago by Warner Brothers Pictures. Let's talk about the budget box office because there's a lot of interesting things here. The budget is listed as $185 million, uh, which would be four times the amount he had had before for any film. I mean, you got to think about anyone suddenly having four times the resources you've ever had. Right. Uh, I think the fact that he delivers on this is pretty incredible. The the most before was thirty seven million on Prisoners and Rival. And the other thing I want to say about this numbers are that as big as that is, also when you look at like the recent Avengers or Star Wars movies, like those are like two fifty to three fifty million. So this is like a big blockbuster budget, but it is still less than a lot of other stuff that's coming out. And this movie, to me, looks so much better than those. Right. And so, so on, on the, I just want to emphasize both yeah. of those, that he did so much more than he ever had before. And on the other hand, I'm like, how did they do this for that, that much <laughs> money when no one else can? Oh, man. It, I, I think well, you're highlighting. There's, it's twofold here. Is I'm so depressed that on the official box office returns that it just didn't pull through because it's an, almost an indictment yeah. on this uh, way of filmmaking by people who have never even paid attention to the movie. The box office was 259 Right, right. 
nobody has any criticism hardly against the film itself. It's everything about its support structure. So it, I hate that that reflects so poorly on like the filmmaking style because when they mm. when they approach this thing, it really just is about best best methods. There has been a trend since Jurassic Park, the obsession with CGI. It has been the new toy that in the industry has been completely paralyzed by. Uh, and they're, mm-hmm. and we're only now starting to like realize, well, it's kind of a collection of the best uh, methods that create the best product. Uh, it's taken a long time to kind of realize this. I mean, I remember when the evil dead remake was coming out in 2013 and it was, they were, you know, they were saying it's all practical effects. Well, it's, well, it is practical effects, but there's also a ton of visual effect work actually re- doing, removing things and adding to what you don't see. But it's led by mm-hmm. a real practical effect. So you have something to work on at the base level. That makes it all better. Uh, if you start with nothing, how do you compound nothing? This is why people look at the Star Wars prequels and go like, oh, it's a little bit plastic because there's nothing actually there. It's much mm-hmm. easier to convince the audience that it goes on forever and ever if the thing directly in contact is actually there. So when they came down to this movie, they built nearly everything. And then where they couldn't build, the set extensions were done with CGI. But the, this this is also a, one of the first instances of serious miniatures being used that I can think of Mm. in 20 years, Uh, maybe even longer. I mean, miniatures went out the window basically since Jurassic Park and and stop motion. Um, Miniatures have just, and I don't know why miniatures are like one of my favorite things in filmmaking because they, they, the scale, the the tactile nature of it, it's there. It's in front of the camera. Uh, That's Mm. the, you can't fake it. They were doing all of that for Blade Runner. When you're in the city going through the buildings, they built that city. Weta Workshop Mm -hmm. built the huge Wallace compound that over just completely overshadows the Tyrell building from the first movie. That's a real Mm. thing. That's a real sculpture. They made that. And it, I think it's like 10 feet tall or something. So they shot this for real. And then they built the, uh, the effects around it. So it just reverberates that, uh, that authenticity in all directions Mm. because you're starting with something real. Uh, again, like I said, I was I was on the effects team for Altered Carbon when this was coming out, and everybody's paying attention to what these people were doing because mm. they were doing things that just people didn't see the value in. And in, in the industry, the people were putting money in certain directions. They have buddies that need the startup work in the 3D tech, so that, that company's going to do the effects, and oh, we'll do it all. It, we have been overrun in the in the industry for 30 years, basically. I mean, for, I can put mm. the nail on the head for Jurassic Park. For 30 years, we've been so distracted by this that we, we let that lead and we stopped telling stories. This was a project that had its story lead and then that dictated the means to go about it. I tend to get taken out of things when there's like really obvious CGI. And there were like, I would say like three shots in this movie where I could tell that there was CGI going on. And the rest of the movie, I was just like, <laughs> how did they build a flying car? Yeah. Well, you know, it's because they built three flying cars and one that fully mm. drives and has operating doors. And then that's cut together with one that's not there at all. So you, you start to blend together the idea of something that's not there at all. I mean, it really is the essence of filmmaking. Um, when you mm. have all these different things meant to be seen from very specific angles and for a specific amount of time, it all, it's the, it's the photo show. It's like watching a, you know, a flip book pictures. It all comes together in one living thing. Yeah. I think you can see that. I think there's no way that this movie, movie would get made like this if they didn't have 
every shot right. planned out before I get in right. there, you know, <laughs> you just couldn't do it. And, and I come at it from an interesting perspective too, because I mean, I'm not only am I just have affinity and passion for that type of filmmaking. That's what my brother and his wife do. They are, you know, creature effect makeup artists. They mm -hmm. love the practical stuff. They're doing the Hellraiser reboot right now in Europe. Uh, yeah. Ugh. So the, it's like, I, this is what we are into. We, you know, we've always been into these very tactile movies uh, that put things in front of the camera. That's what I grew up on. And the, you, the computer just doesn't, is, is, it just doesn't replace it. You can use mm -hmm. it as a part of your tool book to fill in the holes and it can be amazing. I mean, there's incredible effects, you know, 3D effects work. I know I've, I've worked on those teams. So 3D effects are amazing when used in the proper places. This is the utmost forefront you know, example of being like, this is effects. These are effects used in the right manner in every shot. Hmm. What were the three you didn't like? I was curious. I wouldn't say didn't like, but the three that stood out to me, weirdly enough, it was like the projector on top of his apartment moving around. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the thing on the swivel arm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. It was just that moving around twice. And then it was the shot of uh, his ship crashing onto the trash area. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, the, the little hook grappling gun thing that, that comes out definitely looks pretty cheap. You know, that's one of the weak. It's in that mm. same moment in the trash yard. So, yeah, there, there's 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 oh, yeah. little things here and there. But in, in total, I mean, it's just gorgeous. Again, that trash yard, they built mm -hmm. that all as a miniature. <laughs> and they built the real set for real, too. And yeah. then, again, that goes into, OK, you build the miniature. Now you scan it. Now you bring that into the computer. It's one for one. It is it uh, instead of the other way around. Emmett, for anyone who hasn't seen Blade Runner 2049, what would you tell them about the story? All right, so this is about a young android Blade Runner. So he is uh, named Kay. This is played by Ryan Gosling. He is a human who has grown in a test tube, basically, to be a very strong, I would say, if you're thinking in terms of D&D, &D, high strength score, low will and wisdom score like thank you this is that's what the uh that's what the androids are supposed to be they're very strong and they're very smart but they're not like they don't have really a will of their own and they're they follow human orders and he is employed in going after older uh, models of androids that are attempting to live in society as humans and retiring them which means killing them at the beginning of this film, he goes to kill an android played by Batista. When he does that, they find on that android's property a box with some old, old bones in it from like 30 years before. And as they go to analyze these bones and figure out who it was that might have been killed there, they realize that it was an android woman who had been pregnant and had given birth to a child. Now, androids are not supposed to be able to reproduce. Dun, dun, dun. As, the, as the cop lady says, this breaks the Robin world. Wright, baby. Yeah, oh, she's so she's good. She's incredible. She's so good. Oh, this. my God. This is my, I think this is my favorite role of hers, and she's got some amazing ones. <laughs> they realize that this android woman has given birth to a child, and it, now Kay has to track down this android child who would be in its 30s and kill it, bring it in for the cops, one one of the other at the same time the massive wallace corporation which has taken over the t-rail corporation from the um, previous movie 
which were the ones who created the androids. Um, the head of the company gets wind of this and is also trying to track down the android child because if they could get androids to re- reproduce, then it would be much cheaper than having to make every android themselves in their labs. Basically, it's Something they weren't able to reproduce in their labs. They weren't able to make this right. happen. So if this happened right. naturally, exactly. it's a miracle and they want it. Also, this harkens back to Jurassic Park because it is a natural evolution in the dinosaurs that allows them to overcome the cloning process, not something that they were able bang to on. induce on them. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And Denny loves chaos theory. That's an iteration of chaos theory of like the random mutation of a new form of, into a yes, new form of yes. life. And Denny loves motherhood too. Loves motherhood too. Big part of this. There's also a lot of lines in this movie. Denny loves lines. Um, <laughs> Lines as in a straight line, uh, yes, not as not, in a line of dialogue, which Denny no, hates. Denny hates that. Less there, of. There are less <laughs> like, of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I just mean he really there likes are straight lines. There. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of moving pictures and colors, <laughs> sounds. <laughs> Guys, you wouldn't believe it. The other day, I went into this like dark room and. There were moving pictures on the wall. <laughs> what? Wow. Next you'll tell us they were talking to you. They were? <laughs> oh my God. So, okay. So, uh, so as Kay begins to track down, uh, try to track down this child, he, through a series of like memories from his past, which he thinks are implants initially because all androids are born at the age that they are. Fake memories to give them a kind of a reading on like human emotion. But one of his memories he realizes is real um, through this series of like trying to find this child, which I thought was kind of like the plot from Incendies, where he's trying to track down these twins in this orphanage Mm. and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then eventually he finds clues that lead him to believe that he is the child. And he also figures out that that child is the child of Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford from the last movie. The Blade Runner sent the Blade Runner from <laughs> the last movie, and the an android named Rachel, played by Sean Young. He thinks that that's him. Bad stuff happens. The cops are basically like, "You are freaking out, and we're going to retire you if you can't." So he has a baseline test to make sure that, as a replicant, right, right. if he doesn't get crazy doing the things mm-hmm. that he has to do for his job, he has to do this test every uh-huh. time he goes out in the field. So as he's uncovering that, like, oh, my God, I might be who I'm looking for and they're and uh-huh. they're going to want to kill me if that's true. Mm-hmm. He starts yeah. emotionally going off the rails. If he goes off the rails, if a, if a replicant uh, is, doesn't stick to their baseline, they're retired. And if he is the kid, they, they, the police, uh, the police are trying to kill the kid. She wants the, uh, yeah. Robin Wright's character wants to completely erase all trace. That's what she says. Erase all yeah. trace of it. She burned down the sapper, uh, homestead, get rid of it. Uh, it breaks the world, which is like, it's amazing to like have a character say that out loud in a piece of <laughs> fiction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. but like but it's so good when she does it uh so uh that's that's the the thing if, if he is who he's looking for that puts him in a wildly dangerous position and right. then number one if he's not then that there this is someone someone is in this position there's also an attitude of robin wright especially but a lot of people treating Kay 
a little bit like he's more human than the other replicants. Right. Like he might be more, yeah. Yeah, something about him feels a little more human to them. And so that's part of his thinking too. Beautiful like, misdirection, is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Is he this child because of the way people think he's different? How does he feel about his own nature? Is like a big question this movie is asking. And he has this magical android girlfriend who is always telling yes. him that that he's very special, but she is just a projection and possibly probably just telling him that because that's what like the company programmed her to right. do. She's like an AI. She's an AI, which is different than an AI. So android. like they took the whole movie of her and said, Well, that's gonna be a piece. <laughs> that's gonna be a part of what's going on. <laughs> which here. is like, okay, let me take that whole movie and put it in my pocket and walk with it. And and yeah, baby exactly. does it do it. <laughs> Well, and all that debrief stuff too, and that like I might be who I'm searching God. for is very Scanner Darkly, which is another mm. Philip K. Dick uh, book. And another thing that's just occurring to me is that the main character's name is K, which is the n- name character of a lot of Kafka's characters. Mm. And this is a Kafka-esque nightmare mm. of like the authoritarian mm. state chasing down like this one single man who is just in an absurd struggle against forces he will never comprehend. So there's a little bit of that too. Well, we're forgetting <laughs> about the replicant uprising, the 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 feminist I movement don't... of the fi- you know like. The... <laughs> oh yeah, there's an uprising. There's a... they they enlist K. You've led Wallace to Deckard. Deckard will right. lead Wallace to us. You have to get rid of Deckard. But again, going back to the yeah. choice that upon K, where he says a different way. That uh, that uprising, the the woman that was witness to the birth. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, is, yeah. Is such an important important part of this. She was torn out her own serial number I. So metal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, that whole part of this is such an important element to it. Comes right back to the Joy character, the Mackenzie Davis prostitute character that is actually the mm. the, the plant. She's not a prostitute; she's a plant for the the replicant uprising. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've seen people just miss the point of a lot of this film in terms of it's like women mm-hmm. politics. It's just like this is a movie in service of women. This is a woman. This is a woman almost led film apart from Ryan Gosling. This is chock full of women, strong women. At the end; these men are all in the service of women. So I think this is a wildly feminist film. Does and get the credit for that for those themes that are actively working throughout it the the whole point of the movie is to say hey you're not important but you are important to a cause like all of us so it's like it's not uh, i i think that that's all wrapped up very beautifully in this i saw those criticisms of the female characters too specifically joy and Mackenzie davis which like i hear but i think if that's your read on it you're kind of ignoring love and Robin Wright's exactly. character and the leader of the resistance. Like the fact that pretty much all of the characters yeah. in power are also female yes. in this movie is significant compared to every other blockbuster. People might watching. answer Neander Wallace, uh, the Jared Leto character, but God, he's not in this movie. <laughs> he's not. He has like three scenes and he is not the bad guy. Love is the antagonist of this film all the way through yeah. down to the climax. There's no question. That's kind of a Darth Vader, uh, Moth Tarkin situation. Sure, but he is not, he's not, there's no, all right, now they're going to go head to head with Wallace, you know, and if they, that's a no. next, that's another no. movie, you know, love is the antagonist. I would just say briefly on this, I feel like Jared Leto just shouldn't be in this movie. Like those scenes. I agree. It was supposed to be David Bowie for real. Well, that would be so That's much what better. it was supposed to be. It was written for him and then he died like six months before they yeah. filmed. 
I don't think that Jared Leto knew that he was in this movie. <laughs> well, you like know. he is so horrible in a movie that has excellent performances. He's so he's bad. <laughs> so bad you can't even follow what words he is saying. I feel like I am in a cult when I listen to Jared Leto <laughs> talk. I I would love to see the character done by somebody else, you know, because I I think that the yeah. writing is so interesting. Uh, I think his line, and he doesn't bother me in the movie. I just feel like he's just, a, I think he and the score are the weak links of it. And those pieces, I would love to see, love to see David Bowie in that role. And I would love to hear the Johan score. I mean, even in theaters, I didn't like it, but I really have a distaste for Leto in general and like all the stories you hear when he's in this movie for like 10 minutes and he's mostly like, killing naked women and monologuing. Okay, so he finds, last hour of the movie, he finds Rick Deckard. Rick Deckard has been hiding out in Las Vegas. You know, they fight at first, but then they're going to like talk and there's like the moment of truth. He finds out basically everything. He uncovers it all. He figures out it's the girl who was making the memories, who who's like really the daughter and that Rick Deckard helped them like scramble all of the record so that if anybody ever looked it would look like it was k so k was just kind of like accidentally happens to be set up as the guy who it would look like was her he doesn't find out that it's not him until this whole meeting with deckard is blown up and deckard is abducted yeah um, the, actually the rev yeah up through this he he's thinking he's talking about himself all the way up to deckard getting taken mm-hmm. yeah because he thinks he's talking maybe to his yes. dad and like that's the undertone of everything absolutely yeah And then at the end of that, Deckard gets taken by the Wallace Corporation people and love. Kay gets picked up by the Android Uprising ladies. Then they say, okay, you have to go. You have to go kill Deckard. And now you have to basically kill all the rest of those people. You can't lead them back to us. This you have to sever the tie back to us. Well, I just occurred to me. I just want to say one more thing on the feminism like aspect is you get a full on scene of like uh, Robin Wright. Uh, making a full pass at Kay and then trying to back it up as if it might be part of his job and it not and it doesn't go well. It's like that's an amazing thing to see that role reversal, that power play, and and to say more about this character and how he is kicked around uh, in this society and so happenstance in this narrative, the the women are in power. Women are in power on all sides of him. Uh, and the answer to this whole thing is a woman. That scene is so electric. It's amazing. Oh my and God. And so provocative, just like the subtext between them and their relationship. When she's like, what happens if I finish this drink? Uh, look what it's good for though and underneath that narratively this is all the excuse to set up the memory up until this point you've only got a glimmer of the memory of the horse Mm -hmm. you get one glimmer of it you get a flash of a few frames of the horse and the date on the horse when k uncovers the date on the tree it's flashed to you Mm -hmm. then when madam comes to meet him and say that the stuff is going down uh, and it leads into this, this, I'm going to this come on scene, but that's narratively, this is Mm -hmm. what it's good for is to set up the dream because before this, we'd only got a glimmer. Now you get her because she wants to talk to him. She wants to, you know, tell me about, tell me a memory. Look how natural that is to get to what we need to set up for the audience to get to the plot. Really? Mm -hmm. To set up this memory. It's a beautiful way to use character, to drop in at the right moment. She's got a whole totally different plan, but that lines up with thematically, narratively, what we need to set up right here. 
And that's, yeah. that's God, I love movies. <laughs> I love movies like this. That's good. And so at the end here, he chases them down. Love has got Deckard. And then there's two other like hover cars and loves hover car. K comes in on his hover car and damn, he just blasts them right out of the sky and they fall right on the shore. Like this all is all taking place in LA and it's right like down on the beach, but the beach is like crept up. So it's this huge seawall. And so it's just like all crashing on the seawall. And this reminded me a lot of Maelstrom, honestly, it, like mm-hmm. the scene where she's pushing her car mm-hmm. in almost. There's mm-hmm. just like the splashing and like the that scene stresses me out so much because like I can feel every impact of the waves and like, know exactly like what they're going th- like you know I think they, it's my just, favorite sequence of the film it heightens the urgency on everything so much i went back to the theater to experience this sequence over and over again this sequence <laughs> mm. i would compare it and, and i don't even like the movie that all that much but people talk about the uh the sequence in zero dark 30 the assault on the compound as being one of the most expertly crafted sequences of the last two decades as far as just action mm-hmm. i put this climax right there next to it as being one of the most expertly crafted climaxes of a film in the last two decades. Winding up on that seawall. By the time Kay gets out of the car, mm-hmm. chilling. And we've talked about on on this series too, the eight movies before this, there really is not much action. Denny has no, not staged yeah. much action before this movie. And he comes out swinging with this one. <laughs> and number one, this is all happening in the dark. Setting up the geometry of this is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's so smart the way that the sequence is cut together. When you have K on approach, cutting back into inside Love's car, getting the crossover over the open top bubble in the dark. In the rain and the <laughs> waves coming down on it. What's the read on Love kissing K very violently and saying, I'm the best one? That's mostly set up when he is going to investigate first at Wallace. And you get a little bit of play mm-hmm. with them. Uh, talking, you know, they talk about the recording between Deckard and Rachel, and they start talking about what's well, it's it's exhilarating to be uh, asked personal questions, makes you feel a lot, you know. And they start talking about being a little bit more than just an AI replicant and those types of things. So I think it's slipped in there this competition and attraction between the two of them in mm. these sequences. And you, I think, the more you watch Love, I think that that character is so interesting in that she's really, I think, she's played like a terrifying child. I think that there's a lot of repression going on in that character. Mm. The way that she is beholden to Wallace and the way that she then interprets her role and interprets her her charge, her mission, is such a competition-laced intricacy. I think that's what's going on with the kiss and I'm the best one. I think there's a competition as replicants who is going to please their master the, the more. Who is re- who is following the mission? Who is who is pleasing their master? If you watch Love, I mean, she 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 loves Wallace. She is there in the service of mm. Wallace. She wants to serve and she wants to be the best. I think that's what's going on there. There's also something with her having a name. He says, "Oh, he named you. Yes. You must be you must be yeah. special." And she doesn't say anything there, but at the end, she says, "I'm yeah. the best one." So, how does it all wrap up then? All right, so he manages to defeat Love pulls Deckard out at the last minute and they go together like as the morning is dawning in the white snow which also reminded me a lot of like a lot of incendies as well here like the darkness there's a lot of that same thing from incendies where the foreground is dark the background is light and it's like we've got characters who are turned away from the light of truth but now like here on this last like 
this last morning that it opens on, like covered in white snow, the white light of truth. Deckard is going to come and face his daughter and like finally they get to see each other. And Kay lays him down and dies on the steps as this is going on inside. And that's the end of the movie. It's He's delivered the child to the father, the father to the child. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, That's what he, you know, it's a, it's a manual being turned into a poem. That's what he was good for. He's not the purpose. He's not Mm. the chosen one. Mm. This is running against the, the major thematics of huge movies comparable to this. Yeah. I love the twist and it was so impactful to me the first time. I mean, we all grew up in a similar, a similar time when like Harry Potter and the Star Wars prequels were like all about the chosen one. Like this idea that something that really has nothing to do with you has chosen you and has made you special. And that means you are entitled to different things and people should treat you differently because of something that's not related to your actions. And I really feel like that messed me up as a kid. Like I really feel like that changed my attitude about so much stuff, just like Mm. all the media that I was inundated with. And it's really impactful with this because you feel his excitement that he could be the chosen one. And and you watch how everyone treats him differently because of it. And then, She says, oh, you you imagined it was you. I think she says something along the lines of we all did. Like, we yeah, all wish does. it was us. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's mm-hmm. speaking directly to that, that idea this film is really doing on a, on a grand scale. That's the heart of it. And his arc of going from thinking he could be something more than he is and wanting it to realizing it and being disappointed. And then eventually like accepting your role and and then understanding what you have to offer your place, what you can contribute. It might not be the thing you thought, but you have a place and you have something to contribute. You can be important, but you're not the focus. You might not be the, you know, that's what this movie is living mm-hmm. and breathing on. And it's, I mean, what's, some, God, I want more of those, those types of thematics running through more popular media. Well, pretty much a formality here. But Evan, would you say this movie is a flop or a pop? I'll be bopping till I'm dead. <laughs> this movie is a bop. <laughs> this, 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 everything about it, everything about it, except for the Johan stuff. It's a bop. Emmett, flop or bop? Bippity boopity bop. <laughs> It's a big old flop there, Wait, partner. Flop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Absolute garbage. Wade flop or bop? A bop for me as well, obviously. I just think on like a big picture scale, what this movie has to do is like a Herculean effort in that it has to be true to the first one and be sort of like the first one, which is like a gorgeous slow movie about people looking at screens <laughs> and walking through crowds and nothing happening. It has to do that, but also like tell a real story in like a smart and impactful way with a modern sort of bent that we expect today. And like that it does both of those things. So it's like the only successful one. Like this has been such a trend recently uh, with movies that right. It's like it, when you come down to like, really, this is the one that, that hit the mark. I just, there's hardly another one that comes even close in terms of scale. And even something as good as Halloween 2018, I, I still, you know, it's, it's not, it's not 78, so. I don't think we've talked much about the whole replicant question, which was obviously a big big thing people were talking about leading up to this, and people always talk about with the first movie. Different cuts suggest different things right. about whether Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, is a replicant. 
Ridley Scott, the director of that movie, is always talking about how he is a replicant. Harrison Ford, the actor, is always talking about how he isn't a replicant. <laughs> and they're like locked in eternal combat. Which, over that. again, back to my like, the movie was a complete experiment. And that's how divided they are and what they were making. So <laughs> the whole moving brunt of the film is if replicants can reproduce, they are legitimate beings. They will mm-hmm. have their own place at the table, where in, their, in this society, they're subservient slaves. The movie is saying, you're not making slaves, you're making people. What happened with Rachel, whether it was set up or an anomaly, the, the movie puts that question into, was Deckard led there and supposed to fall in love with Rachel, which is such a tantalizing idea. I mean, that's why I think the writing behind the Neander character is spot on. Um, were you led to fall in love with this woman precisely? Were you just a part of an equation or was it all happenstance and Rachel is an anomaly and the joining of you two led to a miracle? It can be either one. Those are the two ideas here. But if Deckard is a replicant, if he's not, doesn't actually matter. The movie is saying it doesn't matter. Mm. We know Rachel is. Uh, It doesn't matter if Deckard is a human or a replicant. If this happened, we know the child exists. The child is there. The replicant child has been produced. It doesn't matter if it's two replicants that produce the child or a replicant and a human. As a fan of the book, I will say, for me, it's never been ambiguous in the book. Or at least it's never been ambiguous by the end of the book. There is a moment in the middle of the book that is thoroughly disorienting as you're reading it, where it goes from like, he is very sure of everything that's going on. He's like tracking down these androids. There's a plot. He's like after them. And then about like in the fifth chapter, somewhere in the middle of it, he like has a mental breakdown and is like, am I an android? (laughs) Like all these signs are pointing to the fact that I could be part of this massive android plot right now myself. And Mm -hmm. he like completely loses his cool for about a half a chapter. And then he gets it back and is like, no, 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 no. Like, I know it's real. But I will say that there's probably enough there that there are other people who interpret the book very differently. If you want to like say that there's ambiguity still for Rick Deckard, I think the movie t- does tear that line beautifully. As happens, yeah, I mean it reaches mm-hmm. into the sinister, the insidiousness of what Wallace is doing when he confronts Deckard, mm-hmm. um, because it's one of these two stories, but one of them is complete fiction. And what he's reporting is Mm. so wildly riveting. If you were saying, you know, like Deckard is sitting there and he says as much, I know what's real. He's being confronted with somebody saying your entire existence is a lie and that everything you did was precisely mathematical. That's just, it's beyond abusive. You know, it's that scene I think is very scary when you consider the weight of what they're really talking about. Something that really stood out to me uh, watching this right now was that I feel like now in in real life we are seeing like more than ever men in power making like real strides on restricting women's reproductive rights like for the most in our lifetime probably in our parents lifetime real progress on that you know the opposite of progress but and that's kind of what this movie is all about too is about a man like obsessed with having control over women's reproductive rights and that being like the one thing he can't reach. This is a uber feminist film. This is a wildly feminist film. If you, if you, if you understand the story being told, it's pretty clear The the Neander Wallace character is hallmark of things that we are talking about right now. 
the other thing I, I would be remiss if we didn't mention the Sean Young. <laughs> she uh, is the main female character in the original movie. She's the mother of the child who the center thrust of this movie. There's a moment where she come where we see Sean Young as she was in the original film. If it wasn't already like hard enough to be like your whole perception of reality might be like just an equation. But like, I can't just give you a new version of the person you lost, you know, uh-huh. like as if it, the conversation, as I was saying, like how insidious the conversation was before his like, and now you have embodied walking up a horror show, a horror show. Here she is. You want your, yeah. oh my God. Um, well, the actress, Sean Young, had a big expose piece earlier this year about all of her experiences working. Oh, gosh. She talked about feeling like she was not in this film much because of her experience on the original, which, as she said, was that Ridley Scott was trying to date her. Mm. She turned him down and then he said he would never Uh. cast her again. The quote from her that was in this article is uh, she said it was very clear that they knew the audience would be upset if I wasn't in it, but they didn't want me to complain about that publicly. So they paid me some money, made me sign a non-disclosure agreement and gave me 30 seconds. And I was like, fine. They did give my son Quinn a job on Blade Runner 2049 in visual arts. And I said, all was forgiven. He's got great skills. Yeah, but I think that's worth mentioning. And Hollywood tread in general is that we do see a lot of the male actors come back for these mm-hmm. legacy sequels, and we less rarely see. She was on set. I think that's uh, they flew they flew her yeah, out. Yeah, she, she was and she was there absolutely coaching the uh, the body double because I mean she's you know it's been mm-hmm. forty years. I mean, I thought it was impressive at all that they even flew her out there. But I, you know, it's one thing to like, okay, here's yeah. some ideas, here's some rough versions of what we're playing with. Uh, what do you think? To actually be like, no, we want you out there. We want you to actually talk to the body double, talk about your body movements. What would you have done? Be a part of it. I thought that was, I mean, what what more do you want? You know, I, I, I don't, in terms of the story, I don't think that they crafted this story around not having that character in the film. That seems preposterous to me. Mm. Um, that, that, that the inception of the screenplay, the story, story by Hampton, you know, like that that is contrived from a point of inception that we can't have that character in it. I don't really buy that with the strength of this material. If this movie was kind of just like, well, it feels a little cheap, then I, I maybe I could see that. This does this mm-hmm. has no bearing of something that was like thrown together. That character not being in the script is intrinsic to the plot. Well, let's move on to MVP <laughs> here. I know this is not going to be an easy decision for any of us. Oh, God. But who's our MVP of the movie? I think we should take Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford off the table. Is that what you think, Emmett? Uh, let's do it. I'm in a battle between Mackenzie Davis and Love, but I think I got to give it to Love. Oof. I think I got to give it to Love. I think she's so important. Mm-hmm. I think that that character is so understatedly beautiful in the conflict you see in her face. Uh, that performance is incredible. I think that that character is incredible. I'm so glad you talked about you. You asked about like the kissing stuff. I think there's a lot going on in that character. I think she's a formidable antagonist, and I think she is the true antagonist of the film. Emmett, MVP? Who else? Who else? <laughs> but my actual queen, my <laughs> beloved magical android super girlfriend, Anna yeah, Darmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. It's too hard. Yeah, Has anyone anyone ever 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 been more beautiful 
than she is in every <laughs> outfit that she wears in this film. There's a scene where they're just like, yeah, let's put her in seven different outfits in 30 seconds because she's an android. She can do that. <laughs> and they're all impeccable. <laughs> uh, talking about like having the emotional weight of the film a lot of the time is like like all of the complicated stuff that that Kay feels about her later like when the with the reveal aside absolutely like the work that she's doing is so warm and beautiful in the mm-hmm. beginning and like is really like i think she is the catalyst for him like making making strong choices i think what you're hitting on is actually the answer to the replicant question as well you know the replicant question i would say the film is saying it doesn't matter there's beauty in that already there's the mm-hmm. other question here as to like well we have two ais technically falling in love with each other and then one of them realizes yeah. oh man was i was it just a program i wasn't special what he realizes is in the uh-huh. moment is it doesn't matter what happened between us happened yeah it doesn't matter. Yeah. It was real. That's real enough because it happened. Yeah, I love how the somewhat simplistic race metaphor that's often there with Android yes. stuff yeah. is so complicated in this world because there are like four variations. Yeah. And I think there's like such that powerful moment where I think it's Mackenzie Davis or maybe it's one of the other women see Joy and they're like, oh, you don't like real girls. Yeah, yeah. And they're replicants. And humans would say that about replicants, but they are replicants talking about the AI. Yeah. Yeah. But those are not real. Yeah. But they're real. And there is just like this messy, complicated. And it's such a beautiful, almost nonverbal moment that his thing goes off in his pocket. Mm-hmm. You hear the little ding, like you got a tweet, you know, a tweet or something. Uh, and she knows. She's oh, you don't like real girls. And it's, that's world building. That's character. Now you're, now you're setting up a whole sexuality. I, I also think the scene where where it's like joy. The sex scene. Yeah, that scene is so deeply upsetting. And is <laughs> like such classic, the, almost like the displacement horror of um, Enemy or something like that mm. is like present is wow. present in that moment. Hmm. And it, it's it's a it's a very Dickian moment, but it's also a very Villeneuve moment at the same time. My MVP would be tough pick. And since I'm last, I'm gonna give a couple shout outs. And I wanna say to Lenny James, who plays uh the head of the orphanage. Mm. Yes. That yeah. scene between him and Gosling is so good. And uh Edward James almost, who's mm. the other returning actor from the first one, who's just in that one scene and in what looks like a retirement home. <laughs> and I don't know, that scene is very suggestive. His performance is yeah. so good in like 40 seconds of this movie. Hey, where do old Blade Runners go? Retirement home. To a retirement home. home. <laughs> <laughs> but my MVP, it actually probably would have been love. But since she's taken Robin Wright as Lieutenant Joshi, She's so good. She's heavy in that first section of the movie and really like introducing you to what's going on in this world. And also her character could so easily be exposition. Her character right. should so right. easily be like just right. function and like the gravitas and personality that she brings to it that like she is doing herself makes it into a character that you want to see so much more of than you do. A character that would have very in anybody else's movie been a man. I mean, I think everyone other than Mackenzie Davis and Anna Diarmas would have been men yep. in a lot of other movies. Uh, so final thoughts, anything we haven't mentioned or last word to people on Blade Runner 2049? I think it's a it's just a deeply overlooked film. 
a misunderstood film, I think. So I, I would beg people to uh, to give it a second chance or give it maybe give it your first chance and go mm-hmm. into it with an open mind. But I, I think I think that this is a, an important movie. While it might not have been like commercially successful at the time, I don't think its impact is lost on the art form at all. So I would just behoove people to just go check it out one more time. Give it a second look. There's a lot more going on than than what people might just talk about in the headlines. Emmett, final thoughts? I've got two, not one, but two That Guy Awards this time (laughs) around. Both for Coco, who is (laughs) that one weird dude who we've talked about. We've talked about a couple of times on this, I feel like. He was in he was in the Dark Knight. David Desmalchi. Yeah, Yeah, that that guy. I love him. And then the other that guy award is for the guy in the uh like in the library in the archives, who is our friend Caliban from um, I believe uh X-Men Apocalypse. Oh, mm-hmm. Interesting. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. No, he's very yeah. good in the archive section talking about the the when what and what he's yeah. good for, yeah, so good for is giving you that context, that world building of the blackout, trying to understand what has happened between yeah, like, the last movie and this one. But this environmental stuff is like Four years ago, this was scary. Now that seems like even realer than ever. Um, like that orange yeah. haze, like over LA being landlocked, covered in snow. San Diego is not even a city anymore. It is just a trash heap for LA. It's not taking front seat in this film, but I think it's it's something that Denny is worried is it about. about. The, is it relating to our capitalist themes? If we let people like Neander Wallace run the world, this is what happens. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and then my last note that I have here is just in huge letters, bees? <laughs> a very, very Candyman-esque scene here with the bees. What do you make of it? Listeners, please send us any thoughts that you might have about mm. the bees, the symbolism therein, and uh, what that might have to do with Candyman or other things at um, cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Wait. Final thoughts? Like I said, I, I liked this film a lot the first time and I was expecting it to be good, but I really came away feeling like it is Denny's masterpiece of everything yeah. we've seen so far. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, I mean, part of that is because, you know, we see Denny revisit similar themes and structures for his movies a lot. Maelstrom to enemy to arrival are all kind of like siblings. This to me cribs from his best movie so far, which is Incendies. Mm-hmm. Taking that like huge, epic, sprawling journey through memory, rediscovering your family and your past and mixed with such like amazing, unparalleled effects work that just like elevates. I think both of those things elevate the other, you know, mm-hmm. in a really awesome way. And I say people should go watch it. Go watch it yeah. on a TV. Watch it where you can. But I would say don't watch this on your phone if you have. No, yeah, option. go in a little dark room and watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch. Don't... Turn the sound up. Yeah, watch it on the biggest, loudest available with the little distraction. You can't look away. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. Well, we have retired Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but it's not over yet. We've got a little quiz before we're done. This is Bums the Word, our quiz game. I have selected movies that I will give you hints about, and whoever correctly guesses the title of the movie first gets a point. Whoever has the most points at the end wins. Six movies, and there is a link between all six of these movies. So whoever correctly guesses that will get an additional point. This is fun. Film number one is from 2013. It is a comedy 
based on real-life events, I think actually adapted from a memoir, just by one of the the best and most popular living directors. Wolf of Wall Street? That's correct. That is one point for Evan, Wolf of Wall Street. Film number two is from 2019. It is a sequel to a film from 2017. And uh, they're also both based on a novel. This is a horror film. This is a sequel horror film? (laughs) This is a sequel horror film. And the first film is set much earlier than the sequel. So the sequel is with almost like an entirely new cast. The Conjuring. No. Uh... The returning actor in this is the monster, the villain. Hmm. The main cast is played by adult actors. Where they oh, were... is it It Part Two? <laughs> okay. That's correct. It's It Chapter Two. <laughs> Film number three is a 2015 drama, a 2015 western, directed by uh, a big stylistic director. Got a big ensemble cast. The master. <laughs> this is this is a western, but it's uh, a part of the the rare group of westerns that take place in the winter. Hateful Eight. It is the Hateful Eight. Is winter westerns a genre? <laughs> winter westerns for three hundred. We <laughs> film number four. And this is a bums the word first. This is a movie that has not yet been released. But as this episode comes out, it will be coming out this Friday. And this was a movie that was supposed to come out several years ago. We have all seen advertisements for it. This is the latest in a long running franchise. Uh, No Time to Die. die. I said it first. I heard them at the same time, so I'm going to give a point to both. Fair. It is indeed No Time to Die. Two more on the board here. Anyone have a guess at the link between these movies? Is it movies based on movies based on books? No. <laughs> not a bad, not a bad guess, but no, that is not the link. Is it good mo- okay. good movies, right? Good movies. <laughs> good movies. <laughs> yes, these Dindy, movies are all you got good. it. <laughs> you are both correct and will not be getting a point for that. That is true. That's totally true. Film number five from 2019. It is a superhero film. Another big ensemble cast. Endgame? (laughs) Yes. I got it. I got it. Yeah, baby. All right, is the is the is the thing that connects all these movies uh-huh. that they're all over two and a half hours long? <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> you got it. Boom. Beautiful. They're all long, long. movies. <laughs> Big studio movies longer than two and a half hours. See, most people wouldn't even think about these movies being like, oh my god, what a slog. But that's like the first thing I hear about 2049 <laughs> from people who have never seen it, who have seen all all those movies well emmett you've cinched it with the link going into the final film the score is evan four emmett three you have a chance to tie this thing up let's see if we can do it our final film film number six is also from 2019 it is a crime movie is it the irishman it is the irishman crime movies (laughs) equally tied Equal honors to both. Congratulations. Congratulations to you both on a job well done. Nice. Okay, I guess the last order of business here, Emmett. You know, we've got to say, originally, we timed this out so we would be 
watching Dune as it came out and talking about it next week. Yeah. Then Warner Brothers pushed it back a couple weeks. Yeah. So we're not going to do anything that clean. I wish we were watching Dune next week. Yeah. Thanks, Warner Brothers. We have been completely and 100% inconvenienced by this, and we are the only people who have been inconvenienced by this <laughs> Warner Brothers. <laughs> so I just want to take this time to get it off our chest that we are really personally upset and like, hurt by this. What was the, what's the problem? It's like, hasn't the movie been done forever? What, what happened? They changed it like a week? Yeah, it was all HBO Max shenanigans. It was because they wanted to get the Sopranos movie out early. Oh my God. I think, I think Dune is out in other countries now. Because they don't have HBO Max. And in America, <laughs> we're waiting two extra weeks. Wow. Okay. What I can say is that we're going to start our next series mm-hmm. next Tuesday in a week. We're diving straight into our next series. You'll get two episodes of that, and then we'll finish Dune. We'll finish Denny, rank all of them, and then continue with this series. Emmett, you want to do the honors? What are we watching next? Next up, in honor of spooky season, mm-hmm. we are doing... The excellent comedy horror franchise of Scream. Ooh. Ooh. You said comedy. It's a satire. It's not a comedy. But yes, uh, that will be a blast. <laughs> I'm so excited. I've only seen the first one. There are four. We're going to be covering four. And then when the fifth one comes out next year, we'll talk about that as well. First one with no uh, Wes Craven. I know. Yeah, so really excited. I, I watched the first one for the first time last year. I was really like blown away with it. And it stuck with yeah. me in a big way. Oh, yeah. Like I really have thought about it since then a lot. That's probably my favorite opening scene of all time. It's, it's so good. Crazy. Evan, I know you're a big fan of it too. What would you say to anyone who's about to watch Scream for the first time? Be prepared to, you know, go back to the 90s for a second, but talk about the state of horror at the time uh, and coming out Mm -hmm. of the 80s, you know, Jason Kruger um, parade that the 80s was. The genre had really fiddled out. Scream is talking about all of that and mm. and at the same time trying to reinvigorate that very same uh, genre, much like why, you know, you could say on a satire or comedy level that like Kevin in the Woods would be doing. But I don't think Kevin in the Woods was earnestly trying to get anything going for the genre, whereas Scream, I think, was a love letter to the things that worked um, the things that meant something to people uh, and the reasons mm. why that genre had gas in the tank through the 80s. But anybody going into it for the first time, it's really just trying to give a kick in the pants to the genre who had really lost its way. Can't wait. I wish I could be there watching them with you, I mean, as you jump and scream and yell and oh, oh, we, shake we, the we should do a We should do a happens. whole recording. You know, we all watch them together and just re- react. <laughs> a commentary? It would just be Emmett screaming. <laughs> it would just be me screaming. Um, <laughs> oh man, Emmett is such a yeah, uh, such I, a visceral horror movie watcher that it is yeah. like much more frightening to hear Emmett's reaction than whatever happens on screen. Yeah, I'm always a hundred and fifty percent invested in whatever is going on in a horror film, even if it's bad, even when they're like objectively dumb, and I'm like, my brain is telling me, don't be afraid of this. My body is like, I've only seen the Babadook once, and that's with you, Emmett, and I remember that. <laughs> so clearly and i have no doubt in my mind that the fact that i was watching it with you infinitely enhanced the experience (laughs) i mean when the thing would just be there in the corner of a frame 
Emmett would jump off the couch and stand in the corner <laughs> on top of the couch as far in the corner, as high in the room as he could get. Uh, and, and it's like the movie wasn't even making it. The movie was like, you're never going to see this is like what was happening on the screen. And he just finds it and elates out of his seat. <laughs> I just love horror. What can I say? <laughs> Well, all that to say is so we're very excited to watch Scream. <laughs> very excited. You, you know, the original pitch for Ryan Murphy's Screen Queens was just me and him in a room watching Scream together <laughs> and filming the reaction. <laughs> oh my God. Evan, thank you so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Anybody who wants to find me, uh, Instagram, uh, the Evan Scott Russell, all my links to my, if you want to watch my movies or you want to go on see my podcast illiterate where we uh, do a kind of a breakdown of wh- what's coming out and why is it coming out and where did it come from um illiterate mm-hmm. so you can find all my stuff on instagram the evan scott russell yeah people should listen to illiterate especially if you like this show yeah if you like me ram like talking about like blade runner like we tried to give what's coming out each week uh, a good look so that we can talk about it in that form where it came from why it came from why is it in this form why now i just happen to love blade runner so it was very easy for me to go and refresh this stuff but we try to give each week um we try to just unpeel that onion a little bit to give some context to things that are coming out that seemingly are like oh this is all totally original all new it's like well actually it's based on a article from 1849 and this is the person that did it and this was their whole <laughs> life and what it, what that piece was about and why it changed hands and got licensed and why we're still dealing with it today you know like so if you like any of that stuff illiterate <laughs> yeah i love illiterate everyone go listen to it <laughs> thank you guys We'll be back in three weeks talking about Dune, in 42 weeks talking about Jordan Peele's Nope, and next week talking about Scream. Hmm. Until then, Emmett, what would you say? Pumpernickel bagel, stay frosted, baby. <laughs> Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 